welcome to the podcast, Sophia. So good to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, we're so excited to talk to you today about your new chat book with us titled But For I Am A Woman. And for those who don't know, But For I Am A Woman is coming out in November. And the way I've described this chat book is that it explores the intersection of personal autonomy and a deep spiritual connection through the writings and life of Julian of Norwich. Julian was a mystic and potentially the first woman to write a book in the English language. So yeah, we are really excited to learn more about her and about your work today. Yeah, Sophia, I just want to premise this with just saying I personally didn't know anything about Julian of Norwich and your writing is just so stunning that I was in for the ride first page. I was like, I don't understand what's happening. You know, later did a little bit of Googling and was even more amazed and in awe and just thrilled. But the power of your language and everything that you offer in the pages of But For I Am A Woman is just so just rich and beautiful that, yeah, I committed myself right away. And, you know, I believe that was a similar experience for for Joe when he read the manuscript. And Mm -hmm. Claire, I'll let you speak for yourself, but we just knew that we found this just extraordinary manuscript. And we're just so grateful that there was this like scholarly angle in this this opportunity to learn more about now someone that we're a huge fan of, which is, you know, Julian of Norwich. But yeah, first of all, so our audience has quite a bit to catch up on and to learn. We <laughs> promise y'all Sophia will will get us there. Let's start with just Sophia, could you describe for us from your perspective who Julian of Norwich was and perhaps a little bit about what it means that she was an anchorite and why her situation was so compelling to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks so much, Nar, for that beautiful introduction. And thanks, Claire. Yeah. So I, I love that you kind of start from that sense of not knowing who Julian was and then kind of feeling like captured and along for the ride. I think that was really my my hope for the book, um, looking at it as kind of a threshold into this life. Mm-hmm. So Julian was born around 1342 or 1343. We don't know that much about her and most of what we know comes from her writing itself, which is really kind of interesting. Around um, 1373, when she was around 30, she had a series of visions that she then wrote in the first version of her book, which is called A Vision Showed to a Devout Woman. And then around 1390, she started writing kind of this longer version of that book, which kind of reinterpreted those visions. Um, And by this point, she had become an anchorite which means it was kind of this unique form of monastic spiritual life in which a person was, basically they were kind of committed to this small room or enclosure attached to a church in a religious ceremony that was at once kind of both a wedding and also a funeral. So it kind of married them to this room and also declared them kind of dead to the world and to worldly responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Um, So kind of setting them apart into this, in between space where they were 
both kind of in the world, but not quite of it. Can I ask you a question about that? Yeah, absolutely. I know in Julian's case, that meant she was interred in Mm -hmm. that space for the rest of her life. Yes. Correct? Yeah. Is that always the case with an anchorite? Or was that always the case? Yeah. So it was the case that once you kind of made that vow, you were committed and held by it. So it wasn't a state of life that people entered and left, as far as I know. Or, you know, if you were to leave, that was kind of breaking the vow. So that the vow itself didn't really hold room for that kind of flexibility. Wow. That's very hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think this is the point where it's it's the idea of of being enclosed in a small space for the rest of your life, a space without a door, as your manuscript points out, that a lot of people kind of gasp and feel very claustrophobic about. Yeah. But yes, I'm sure we'll talk more about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um and yeah, and I think that kind of combination of of enclosure and kind of claustrophobia and also the freedom or the way she was able to write this really radical text from that enclosed space, like that that paradox, I think mm-hmm. is what really captured me at first and kind of what what led to this this manuscript. That makes sense. So it's clear to me that there's a really strong companionship between you and Julian. Um all these centuries apart. And even though there's ample notes in the back of your chat book, which is wonderful to read, that's like a whole bonus book almost, <laughs> like a little mini chat book of scholarship and just the the scholarly um, breadcrumb trail that led you to, to know Julian the way that you do. It seems very intimate in your poems. So I'm curious about that companionship between you and Julian, and I'd love to hear more about, you know, did you feel a little bit, I know you have all these scholarly texts, but did you feel a little bit like you were doing a bit of conjuring as well or communing with her in some kind of more abstract or spiritual way? Um, Or did you feel really close to her through those source texts, maybe? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I first encountered her just through her own words um, in a class in the mystics in college. So just by kind of reading her text, not secondary sources. And I think maybe that helps to create that sense of intimacy. Um, And I I think I also always felt very careful. There's an experimental filmmaker named Trin T. Min Ha, um, who's this documentary called Reassemblage, where she speaks about not wanting to speak about, but nearby this place, Mm. kind of speaking against the exoticizing of of spaces and documentary mm. and I think I that that intention of wanting to speak not about or not for but nearby um really helped me as I grappled with the question of how you write in conversation with a life that is you know far removed from mine both in mm-hmm. space and time and the question of you know not silencing somebody who whose life is already kind of lost to us in a lot of ways like not trying to speak into that space yeah. yeah, and it's important to note, these are not persona poems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a super intentional choice. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow, I'm going to have to check out this documentary and filmmaker. Yeah. Um, what a beautiful way to approach the manuscript and your connection and companionship mm-hmm. with Julian. Yes, Anara, that's right up your alley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is a little off the beaten path, but were there, you know, just as a super ritualistic person, I'm curious if you had 
a space or a ritual that put you near, as in like, did you burn incense or did you listen to specific music or how did you enter that space or that pass into that threshold to conjure or to welcome the space in which you held Julian nearby? Um, that might be a little too <laughs> a little too mystical or no. a little too spiritual for for this, but yeah, I'm always just curious. No. I love that question. Yeah, no, I think we can definitely get mystical and spiritual today. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think that part of what draws me to Julian's work is the sense of a work being so shaped by the space that produced it. Like it it Mm -hmm. kind of is a text that was written in an anchorage. And, And I think for me, the book really started when I had just moved to Nashville for graduate school. And for the first time I was living I had this kind of little um, carriage house that was built from somebody's garage in someone's backyard in Nashville. And it was this like little kind of tiny, you know, maybe like 800 square feet, basically kind of one big room. And it was the most space I'd ever had to myself. Mm-hmm. I kind of grew up in a big family and was kind of always sharing spaces, and mm-hmm. which, I, which I love too. Mm-hmm. But having this sense of like four walls that were just totally mine and having moved to Nashville for a degree in writing. So kind of having this sense of using that space for my own work and writing made me feel really kind of oddly guilty at first, which was really interesting. So I kind of <laughs> dug into that, the, just that, that guilt. And I was really struck. There's an essay um, by Adrienne Rich where she writes about how when she was pregnant, it was the first time that she felt not guilty as a woman because she was literally using her body for somebody else in a very like, visible way. And I think that that felt connected to my guilt at kind of having this space um, that was just mine. So it kind of, it was that space in Nashville, I think, that helped me really enter into the question of of Julian's life in a new way. Um, so I wrote like the first draft there um, in that little house. And yeah, I'm trying to think of other, any other rituals or things. Um, that's already yeah. just above and beyond what I could have wanted as an answer. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that really is beautiful. And I feel like there's a poem in that, mm-hmm. <laughs> in that experience. Um, wow. Well, I'm going to connect it to my next question, <laughs> which is about autobiography. Yeah. And I learned from reading the introduction to Revelations of Divine Love that Julian avoided writing about her personal life, Mm -hmm. even though she was writing about herself in some ways. It was more about herself as a conduit for these visions, um, these divine visions. And I think it's fair to say that in But For I Am a Woman, there's bits and pieces of her biography being explored, or at least we, the readers, are given sort of a vision, uh, these little snapshots of what it may have been like, even just in the senses, in the body, in being being in her life, in her time. And I definitely know that there are glimpses into the speaker's autobiography Mm -hmm. as well. So I'm just curious if that was kind of coming back to this channeling idea or this ritual idea, if that was a, another piece that you were intentionally working with in, in finding the Julian um, that maybe you don't 
necessarily you can't necessarily access in her writings themselves Mm -hmm. and maybe how that if it does (laughs) um harmonizes with your own autobiography or with the speaker's autobiography yeah absolutely um yeah, there's a really interesting kind of school of thought about that sense of like not putting the self in the text, differentiating mm-hmm. Julian from a lot of other religious works kind of of the same time that were often framed as more like instructional or kind of, you know, texts that were from someone of more religious authority for people of, of less authority to kind of follow and live their lives by kind of following that text. So kind of younger nuns or monks. And Julian's text was much more has the sense of kind of being written from somebody on a path to kind of others on the path. Mm -hmm. Um, Some scholars also have written really interestingly about how in some ways she's a precursor to Virginia Woolf and the Mm -hmm. sense of kind of collapsing the sense of division between the reader and the writer. So she kind of wants the reader to enter the text and experience it in a really kind of direct way. And we have some kind of interesting records of, one nun in particular kind of doing that, you know, writing words from Julian's text in like a book and kind of writing her own thoughts about them and then kind of returning to the text. So kind of folding it into her own sense of spiritual growth and evolution. Um, and even like on, on her deathbed, kind of asking for a crucifix with Julian's words underneath it to be displayed near her, mirroring an event um, in Julian's vision. So kind of having her own life be a text that mirrors Julian's life. So I think that that combination of stepping back from direct autobiography, but in a way that maybe allows for a closer connection between writer and reader is really interesting to me. Does that answer your question or is that? It was a loose question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that's all really fascinating. And I love, I love thinking about what you just said reminded me of the introduction Mm. to your chapbook. Um, written by Carlina Duan and B. Troxel. So there's this layering of, oh, this layering of influence, I guess, that gets handled in the introduction and the way that the three of you as friends have influenced each other creatively. And then how your various passions, of course, folding in Julian into the mix, have sort of bled into each other's uh, creative circle. And I really love Mm -hmm. that there are other artists and spiritual folks who have also felt this like strong connection to Julian's life and work and wanted their own lives to have like a kind of a mirrored quality to reflect hers. It's just, she, she's clearly, she was onto something Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) in the influence that she's had. How, how much later? Yeah. Uh, It's, it's wild. Absolutely. Sophia, you touched base just a little bit about how you took a course in mysticism, and that's kind of how you were introduced to Julian. Um, But we're curious how your work is in conversation with mysticism. And of course, we're we're always asking for recommendations on what we Mm -hmm. should read. So if you want to introduce us and our audience to some texts that you might recommend. We fully welcome it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so my, my introduction to the mystics came actually in college during a time when I was also reading a lot of mystery series, So, <laughs> which, which actually at the time felt very different. But looking back, I think, um, you know, I was in college, I was far from home. Um, I was on the East Coast and I grew up in California. 
And something about both mysteries and the mystics felt important to my reading life at that time. And I, you know, I think there's a way in which, um, and I'm not the first person to make this connection, but there's a way in which people in mysteries, detectives have this sense of like, something is wrong here and I can't quite say what, but mm-hmm. I'm kind of seeing beneath the surface of everyday life. And mm. there's that sense in the mystics too, of kind of seeing deeper, um, of going beneath the surface of kind of following this feeling and having that kind of feeling be the guide. Mm. Um, yes intuition really I never in my life thought that a great detective and a great mystic could be the same (laughs) but now I'm changed yeah that's fascinating it's also I mean I guess it's the silly little clue is that the words are very similar and so they Mm -hmm. deal with some fundamentally similar Mm. idea but I yeah. guess that I I guess that similarity comes from the word mystery. But yeah, that's that's that is fascinating. Yeah. So did you find some interesting resonances between specific texts, or how did that play out? Yeah. Um, so one of my favorite mystery writers is Dorothy Sayers, who was kind of writing the golden age of mysteries. Um, she lived in Oxford and wrote this mystery series about kind of a very aristocratic, funny, suave. Um, slightly absurd <laughs> detective um, who's also a lord named Lord Peter Whimsey. And at first the series is like primarily on the surface. Like he's more of a caricature. Um, it kind of really follows like formulas for mysteries. And then as it develops, he starts to become more real and she introduces a female character who's also a mystery writer who is in some ways very similar to Dorothy Sayers. So there's kind of this like almost like autofiction element And with that relationship, they both start to deepen and kind Mm -hmm. of become more fully rounded people. Um, And I think that process of starting something that seems to be one thing and then becomes another feels like a really kind of interesting connection to me. And yeah, I think just that kind of sense of like when you have this nagging feeling that there Mm -hmm. is something more, that you're missing something or that something is wrong, I think that that feeling itself can almost be the plot or the narrative in both mysteries and in mystical texts, I think really resonated with me um, at that time. I love that. That's amazing. I'm also just, what's coming to mind right now is searching poems, um, Mm -hmm. the searching poets, where it's like, yeah, you're just kind of reaching out in a black room, just wondering what there is to touch. And yeah, that's really beautiful. So you're telling us to go read some mysteries. <laughs> Dorothy Sayers. Yes. <laughs> Dorothy Sayers. My favorite is Gaudy Night, which is set at a women's college wow. in Oxford. That and, sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do really feel that searching poetry is my poetry. Mm. It's part of how I view poetry in general is that... Mm. Mm-hmm. What feels spiritual about it to me is that you discover things when you're writing poetry that you didn't know you knew, like your intuition is fully activated. Mm -hmm. And even in just what might feel like random combinations of words, sometimes these little epiphanies can 
take place in writing a poem. Um, and that's when it's coming out of your own brain. Mm -hmm. And so that's really amazing. But then especially as a reader of poetry, where this is all, all new to you because it came from someone else's brain, the level of epiphany or revelation that can take place in poetry does feel very spiritual to me. Mm -hmm. I feel like mysticism and poetry kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. But. Yeah. And I think part of that too is, is the, the way that we return to and reread poems and mm -hmm. we kind of bring our changed selves back to them. And so they, they kind of hold new things for us every time. Um, like I feel like both poems and, and mystical texts really are made to be like lived alongside and kind of carried with you and reread and returned to um, like, that's part of the, the journey of them. Yeah. It's like, you can't ever really know it. it mm -hmm. You read the same poem a hundred times, but you return to it each time as a different person with yeah. new experiences and potentially a new perspective. And, and so, yeah, it changes. And in a way, our failing memories are kind of a beautiful gift because <laughs> it does make things new again. Yeah. When you, when you return, <laughs> you can't really fully know every poem that you read or every text that you read. And so, yeah. There's, there's always something to be rediscovered. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Julian's own life and work, so she kind of, she had these visions um, and then she kind of wrote them down. And then we don't have intervening versions of text between the initial time she wrote them down and her final long text. So there may have been more mm -hmm. versions in between, but she, basically her entire life, people have talked about how the long text, the second version of her work is the history of how she built a relationship with her visions. Mm. So if the first text is just the kind of the story of her visions themselves, the second text is her relationship with that text in her life. Um, and so I think the sense of like layers and kind of returning to things over time is really shown in her work. I love that. There's, I feel like there's a lot of pressure to define things in the present moment and to never return to it. Um, mm. So I do like that, you know, not not only poetry, but, you know, I'm, I'm being reminded of like, I don't know if, if either of you have ever read a book of poetry or just something that you weren't ready for, but then you returned mm -hmm. to it later and it's a different animal. <laughs> it's a different mm -hmm. creature. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I I always wonder, like, the things that we're experiencing now might not always be the, we don't have the clarity or yeah. the knowledge to fully define or understand it. So I like that there is this the space to, you know, kind of put a pin in it and mm -hmm. and come back later. I really love that this also means, though, that when you do encounter a text like you describing your first encounter with Julian's writings or with the mystics, that when it happens that it is the right time or a right time, maybe there's not only one, mm -hmm. but like the conditions were somehow perfect for it to sprout and sort of grow this whole new line of thinking and creative project and your companionship with it really grew because everything was sort of primed and ready for it for whatever reason. That's really, really special, too, though. It means that, you know, just as often as we could maybe not be ready for a text, there might be that perfect text there just waiting for us. Um, but it, I do think that that's rare. Like, I could probably count on one hand how many times I feel like I came to a work, especially poetry, and was like, this was the time in my life to be reading this. Um, so yeah. all the more special. Yeah. 
Well, I'm going to throw a quote at y'all from the introduction to Revelations of Divine Love, because it was fascinating to read around in this book uh, uh, for myself when we were doing the editorial process of working on But For I Am A Woman. It really helped me to understand the spirit of your work. But also when in the introduction, someone would describe Julian's writings, I would often find that that little turn of phrase felt so resonant with your work, too. Mm. And so here's an example of that. (laughs) So it's a quote from Caroline Bynum. And uh, she's a medieval scholar who wrote many books, including one which explores gender and the human body in medieval religion, for those who don't know. And her quote is, bodiliness provides access to the sacred. So that really rocked me. I really felt the truth in that. Uh, It also felt like such an interesting idea in in concert with ideas of gender, of course, which is something that your book obviously deals with pretty heavily. And so it really made me think of of your work. Um, Bodiliness provides access to the sacred. And I was wondering if that was an idea you had rolling around in your mind as you were writing these poems or how you might feel about that connection to your own work. Yeah, I'd love that, Claire. Thanks for sharing that quote. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think something else about the mystics, some of them did write about their bodies and look at their bodies as a kind of text that could teach them about God. Um, and sometimes that comes in forms that I think you know, we might not quite understand um, in the modern world, Mm -hmm. like they they would have stigmata or kind of wounds or um, different things that can be kind of frightening or disturbing now. But I think there's this sense of reading, reading the body, like Julian, um, Julian's visions occurred while she was sick and she she thought that that she might've been dying. Um, And so she was kind of in very intense pain. And this idea of reading the body kind of as a text, um, you know, one, it kind of is an interesting way in which women could sidestep questions of religious authority, women who might mm-hmm. not have been able to read or kind of read other texts, their, their kind of body became the text that, that only they could read, which I think is really interesting. Um, and there's another scholar, Amy Laurel Hall, who is an ethicist at Duke University, and she has a really wonderful yeah. text about Julian. And she writes... Julian was a woman who wrote like a woman and she wrote about blood. Um, yeah. Such a good sentence. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think these, these ways of kind of writing about the physical world, um, looking at the body as a path we have to spiritual knowledge or religious wisdom um, really resonates with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes we can, or it's easy for me to speak for myself to um, overlook that in the Christian tradition because there's a lot of denial of the body too. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, it's really helpful to um, to return to texts that listen to the voice of the body. Yes. I personally you know, again, speaking for myself, I feel like it's so silly that we try to separate out the body from the mind from the soul. I don't, I don't see the division. You, you literally can't see the division because I don't really think it's there. But I love that idea that since that is the division we are working with in our conception of reality, and it seems like that was also the case in Julian's time that the mind and spirit may not have been, those may not have been accessible avenues for her Mm -hmm. to at least outwardly explore her relationship with the divine. And that 
these bodily experiences, including the wounding. I mean, I feel like wounding is is talked about so much in her text and how it's something that she actively desires to be wounded. Um, that's a really, really fascinating kind of way to think about gender as it related to spirituality and how mm-hmm. like it was almost like leaning into the um, leaning into the stigma of being a woman of being a wounded woman as like a way of being seen that was limiting, but that she sort of seemed to like lean into it as a way to like open up new possibilities. It almost feels like she was getting away with something, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, I think too, that we can look at wounding as a vulnerability or a liability. There's that great um, Leslie Jameson essay on, on like women and woundedness that mm. I can bring the title right now, but I'll, I'll look it up. But and so this, this idea of both kind of desiring woundedness and then learning from it and mm-hmm. experiencing it as a source of, of power and kind of way of experiencing divine love is just so paradoxical and like naughty um, K-N-O-T-T-Y <laughs> like just like <laughs> knots and tangles um, you know like it's not it's not easy to think about or read or understand now but I think just the the complexity of that it's a very like thick and textured worldview to kind of enter into and spend time with and I feel like we, we maybe we can't fully understand it or kind of collapse it into um, an easy narrative but just spending time with it I think um is, is really, you know, fruitful and generative. Well, certainly I don't know very much about Catholicism and I'm not here to give a sermon or anything, but it <laughs> does feel like entering a spiritual space through the body and through wounding is a very Christ-like practice. Mm-hmm. And if you were that mm-hmm. connected to a Christ figure in her time, it seems like it gives, it does lend to you a little bit of authority that you, mm-hmm. you at the very least desire that experience yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's so much about, so I, so I, I grew up Catholic and just that, that sense of, you know, watching in mass, like words transform something into something else. Like the, the idea that words have the power to literally change the world. Like in some mm. ways growing up Catholic, I think is really wonderful for a writer wow. <laughs> to kind of have this sense and so much of like the body and words you know, being kind of really connected is also, I feel like, a gift from from some Catholic teachings. And like words as food, the, you know, like the words yeah. of scripture as food that nourishes you, you know, there's so much about, I, I, I was just in, in Oxford for a few weeks and there was a really wonderful exhibit that had a lot of medieval texts. And it was amazing to kind of see pages where people would lean to kiss a picture of Mary or of Jesus and the paint kind of had smeared. Um, so I'm just like seeing the, the ways people's bodies are then writing themselves into these texts. There's a connection between like the mouth and food and words that I think we can really look at through Julian's life. Yeah. And you're right that some of the um, ideas in Catholicism could have primed you to become a poet because that idea that um, word as food, but then sacrament as the actual body and blood of Christ, mm-hmm. they're not asking, at least as I understand it, they're not asking you to imagine a metaphor. 
or like a metaphorical link. You are meant to really fully embody that idea Mm -hmm. and that experience. And that is, that requires the imagination, right? To come into play in a huge way. And especially when you're younger and your brain will so readily do that. It's very intense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. On that note of, you know, Catholicism and language and what we were previously talking about, which is like feminism and and desire, um, Claire crafted this really great question for us, which is, Sophia, in the chapbook, you have a poem which explores the speaker's desire for a sacred no in contrast mm-hmm. to Mary's holy yes. This feels like a perfect example of the profound feminist ideology in the foundation of these poems. Hmm. What is the significance of the sacred no for you, Sophia? What a kind of wonderful generative question. Thank you both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and so for those who don't know too, there's this Catholic idea of Mary saying yes at the Annunciation Um yes to kind of carrying Jesus as this this holy yes called Mary's fiat, where she says, let it be done to me according to thy word. And again, just that that same, that loops back to the thinking about let it be done to me according to thy word, like that thy word kind of is writing itself on her body. And, you know, I, I really love the idea of that as a holy mm-hmm. yes. And I think I want to kind of add this idea of, of a holy no, um, that there are things it can be easy to think that um, that the path to to kind of love or growth is always saying yes to things. And I think that for me, there's been a really powerful process of kind of learning to to see like a no as holy too. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's even like a, a part in the Bible where Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, so I think I often tend to over-explain when I say no or kind of have a hard time actually saying it or wanting to say excuses around it, like why I am having to say no. And so just the, this idea of kind of letting your no be no and having that be enough and having that itself be, be kind of holy has been really kind of captivating and fruitful for me. And and yeah, and I think I'm also kind of this idea of, of like lexical gaps in the language. So kind of words that we could have because we have the opposite of them, but we don't have that word. It's like there isn't a word for the opposite of a virgin, basically, (laughs) if you think about it. (laughs) And so the the idea for me is like kind of like a lexical gap. There's no word for a holy no, but we can kind of write that word and and just kind of hold that idea. Um, That's been really kind of interesting to to spend some time with. I love that. I love it. It speaks to it speaks to me (laughs) so much as a woman. And so I hope I'm not reading too much into mm-hmm. it, calling it like profoundly feminist, but it does feel that way to me. Yeah. And I do feel like we are typically um, instructed in ways to always find a way to say yes <laughs> to things. And even just for the sake of politeness, I think there's a, mm-hmm. a strongly gendered sense of of what being polite is. So that really speaks speaks to me. Sorry to cut you off, Anar. I got excited. (laughs) Oh, we were going to say the same thing. You know, it's 2022. This shouldn't be a revolutionary, Mm life-changing concept, but it still is. You know, here around the office, we talk a lot about agency and politeness and the way that we've been raised and shaped to give constantly, especially as women. Mm -hmm. And I never give a no that's just N-O period. It's always <laughs> this long, apologetic, book-length email. <laughs> um, 
And and it's like our yeses don't include that kind of weight, but it does require so much of the self yeah. that it shouldn't yeah. be overlooked. And so, yeah, that clearly resonates with <laughs> with all of us here today. Well, and the no reminds me of Julian's cell in a way. That is mm-hmm. her holy no to the outside world, <laughs> you know, and to a to a different path, to a different life. Um, in a way, I feel like the no is a confining space as well, but that there's some kind of idea of liberation to be found mm-hmm. in both that idea of the sacred no, but also the the story of Julian. Yeah. Um and I think, I don't know about for you both, but, you know, I think basically most of the time when I say no to something, it feels like I'm doing something wrong still. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I like the idea of not just being able to say no, but but being able to say no and not think of it as the wrong thing. And I think there's this kind of interesting, almost like backlash, like the ways that, you know, even just like the idea of like like the word sorry, how how I guess I you know I often will over apologize or always say that I'm sorry, and there's just kind of I think this sort of like movement now like critiquing that and saying don't say you're sorry, but that feels like one more way to control people's voices. So it's kind of both kind of being socialized to do something and then mm-hmm. that's wrong. Socialized not to do it, right? Yeah, and so I think just thinking about how like on the page and then in our lives, we can make space for ourselves. Um, feels really important to this project. Oh, so well said. They're saying no, and then there's not feeling guilty about it. Mm-hmm. You're just <laughs> always growing. Look at us. <laughs> mm-hmm. Shall we transition into some poems? Yeah, yes. definitely. Maybe I will start with, with the first poem. Before I am a woman, should I therefore live that I should not tell of the goodness? There is an anchoress. There is a horn whose song is ink. An anchoress. A writing desk. A woman declared dead for her life's last half. A woman who had herself declared dead so she could write. Ceremony. The bishop walked her to her grave and pointed. Her grave, soft mouth of ground, dug beneath the window of the room where she would live. Enclosure. Clothed in a century of plague, avoiding graves. Enclosed, she was anchored to a space without a door. They built her in. The sound of each limestone moment stacking up upon the last. Inside, she watched the hands of men wrestle in each brick, their wrists rotating stone to find the slot, the right well fit. Dust ground between the teeth of each cayenne stone filled knuckled cracks and skin. What was the sound of the last stone as it was chiseled in? Cloud roar across high skies. A mare's huffed maternal breath. Field of grain heads moving for once in one direction. What was the sound after? Beautiful. Yeah. And hearing this poem, you wouldn't know (laughs) that it is so beautifully laid out on the page. I think there's this really intuitive link between the language of the poem itself and the form. Um, And it's sort of stacked, but it's also a little bit exploratory. It's not completely orderly, right? The lines sort of break intuitively and are spaced on the page in an interesting way that 
that feels very intuitive to me. Yeah, I think it felt intuitive to write. I love that it felt that way to read too. Um, and yeah, I think in some ways the first poem acts as this organizing map or constellation for, for the rest of the poems. And so it felt like it made sense to have it take up this um, like shifting, you know, very like physical material yeah. sense of moving across the actual page as a like landscape or space. Yeah. You know, Sophia, it didn't even occur to me that, um, so most of the chapbooks that we've worked on, we reshape or reorder and your manuscript was one that just from beginning to end felt really solid. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what my instinct was or why I had assumed that um, these were written in the order that the manuscript appears to us, um, which sounds now really wild and not right. But was this maybe the first poem that you completed? Or it feels like it would be the first or the final. Yeah. <laughs> this this was the first poem. Um, so I wrote it actually, so in that little, that little tiny Nashville house that I mentioned at the beginning. Um, so I think it was my first or second year of grad school. And I was in a class with Kate Daniels, the poet, who herself kind of writes amazing poems about gender and making sense of a spiritual life and mm. often writes these kind of long poems. And I started writing this for that class. Um, and this was kind of the first poem that kind of arrived. Yes. It really does set up everything that follows. Um, Literally. So, <laughs> yeah. I'm glad my instinct was, was correct. Yeah. So the titles that are in brackets for the rest of the manuscript all come from this poem. Mm -hmm. So what's great is this poem does have a sort of map-like quality to it as you read the book because some of these lines keep coming back to us in the form of titles, um, these little echoes throughout. I just want to say that I absolutely love the couplet that comes right at the end. Cloud roar across high skies. A mare's huffed maternal breath, field of grain heads moving for once in one direction. Um, listing images seems so easy to do in a poem, and it's not. <laughs> it's not easy to do well. It's not easy to do in a way that feels complete, like it's giving me complete vision mm. of, of of a space or of whatever is being discussed but also in a way that feels like it's not overdone you know what i mean like it just hits that right that right note in between and i really feel like those are the moments like the mare's huffed maternal breath and the grain heads moving that really root me in the body mm. from the very start that's where i really really feel it um even for some reason, maybe it's because they're men, but even more than the the hands mm -hmm. that are rotating stones, it's like when we get to the mare, <laughs> for some reason, in the field, that's where I'm really in my body. Yeah. I just realized that that was kind of mm. the first moment for me where I started to feel that. I love that. Yeah. Um, and I think kind of this, this like paradox of, you know, being like enclosed in the cell and that, you know, narrowing your world, but also expanding your world. And you know, all these things like the, the clouds and the horses still being a part of the world that you're in. There's like a really kind of interesting paradox for me there. Yeah. Is there another one that you would like to read for us? If we can 
convince you. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd love to. So the the poems kind of go between the the kind of the life or story of Julian and the um, contemporary speaker. So I might read one from the contemporary speaker to kind of mix it up a little. So this poem is called The Book of the Dead. The Book of the Dead. In reading, I understand. Everywhere in writing, there is violence. Any experience described holds inside a kind of death. How astonishing it is that language can almost mean, and frightening that it does not quite. And then how the body scribes, turns parchment, as experience writes itself in, a reflex, a neuron's wet fire. For years, all I have believed is once I believed. Still, whenever I walk into a church, my right hand reaches out for holy water, a reflex, a neuron's long obedience, or its loneliness. My body keeps for me a way of being blessed when I cannot believe in blessing. That is one of my favorite poems in your book, Sophia. Thank you. <laughs> Ugh, a neuron's wet fire is the best. I love that line. Just the way this poem ends is truly just beautiful. My body keeps for me a way of being blessed when I cannot believe in blessing. That is just such a beautiful way to end this poem. Thank you. Wow. I mean, this might be just too simplistic, but I feel like there's a tendency in a lot of contemporary poetry to really explain away um, our ideas or our feelings or our thoughts or whatever the sort of material of the poem is. And I really love how there is a simplicity to to this poem in particular, but upon reading and rereading it, the ideas are actually made more complicated, mm. I think, by the poem itself. They are not explained. Um, that's not the word I would use to describe this, but they are... Mm, they are like brought closer. Mm -hmm. That's the way I feel. It's like these ideas are brought closer to me so that I can sort of observe their various layers and facets. But I'm not necessarily given a, especially let's just talk about like a religious upbringing, right? As like part of the material of the poem. I'm not given like a strong impression of like, this is how the speaker feels and this is how I should feel about mm. this idea. It's more of just something that is presented like an object that I can kind of gaze upon. Um, that, which is not to say that th there's nothing definitive said in the poem. Uh, I just love that they don't, your poems don't necessarily conclude. You have beautiful endings, but there's not a, a tight or easy conclusion. And for me, that's what I love in poetry. Um, mm -hmm. It is like sort of expansive, creating more room for this idea to live and unfurl instead mm. of explaining it away. Yeah, no, I love that. And that really resonates. You know, I think um, I like the idea. It feels connected to me to what it's like to really get to know a person mm. um, where I feel like the more you get to know a person in my experience, like the more complicated and interesting and defying categorization they are. Um, and so I like the idea of poetry as a space where opinions are more surface-based and kind of the poem can be a space where we sort of leave behind something like categories and opinions and boxes and 
think more about like the intimacy in the same way that we would think about intimacy like in relationships or with people. Yeah, beautifully put. Yeah. Is there another one that you would like to read for us? Yeah. Maybe I'll do The Last Time She Stacked. Um, The last time she stacked linen on a wooden shelf. The last time she watched the teeth of winter pin the river there for dead. The last time she hurled herself into hay to find a golden spine hours later in her hair. The last time she left. The last time she went to market, went upstairs, went burying to be alone. The last time she held a body that her body had made. She thought, this is the last time. Afterwards, she could no longer grasp that way. Around her, time changed, became church, river, linen, ladder, hay. Hmm. Okay, also one of my favorite poems. (laughs) (laughs) A good ending poem, too. (laughs) I really think so. Again, coming back to like the complicated layers of this, we have this, what is for us, a horrifying idea of being enclosed in a room for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and even this thought that she was declared dead for the last half of her life is so, so wild to contend with. And then your book does some amazing things to show us how it was this devotional act and how it actually has like a, a room of one's own, coming back mm-hmm. to Virginia Woolf that kind of quality of like a space that was hers and a place where she could write and then complicates it once more, I think, in this poem where we're listing the things that she was able to do for the last time, Mm -hmm. including something as simple as going upstairs. Um, And the thought that she had this awareness that she wasn't going to be doing any of these things again is so, it produces in me a complicated feeling of Mm. deep, sorrow and loss of these beautiful parts of a life, but also that particular quality of loss that makes you feel everything a little more distinctly or just Mm -hmm. the fact that we know we're going to die one day can really make our lives feel so much richer and more incredible. Um, It's like doing something with those two feelings at the same time, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. There's a kind of Mormon like saying or phrase um that really strikes me they will say like like, I love mortality or like you can love mortality which I think is interesting how countercultural that is like I think Mm -hmm. for most of us mortality is like the thing that um we are most afraid of or most struggle with and just like that kind of complicated idea I think is really shown in in Julian's life and yeah and I think too like there's such an element now I feel like I'm, it's so tempting for me to kind of often like leave my body, leave my experience with mm. just how um, like distractions and technology and life feels a lot about kind of leaving and distracting right now. And the sense of like the last mm. time you would leave a place is so striking, I think. Wow. So this book comes out November 12th. We're going to have a virtual launch reading and I believe B and Carlina should be able to join us for that event. Yes, they will. So yeah. just already something really <laughs> exciting on the horizon for you. Um, is there anything else that you would like to plug or just say or recommend? Anything that we should hear before 
we shut this baby down? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so one one book that I really love and have loved spending time with other than working on the Julian book um, is A Ghost in the Throat. <gasps> yeah. I love that book. <laughs> uh, we were going to recommend that title to you. There's many times in this conversation where I felt <laughs> the presence of Darren Nagrifa. Yeah. And I was like, um, we need to recommend this book to you, Sophia, but I'm so happy to hear that you have already dug in. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Um, I Yeah, she's so amazing. Wow. Yeah, I'm just curious. Did you come to that book while you were writing the poems or had you already written them? I had already written them. Um, but I think I read it in between kind of finishing and then submitting it to you guys. So I definitely mm-hmm. was like moved and shaped by it as well oh, working yeah. on this. I, it is such an inspiring text. It also made me want to write a book. Yeah. I really love it. Yeah. And and that was a book that Joe, he was obsessed. Yeah. He pushed at the bookstore. He oh. made sure we got copies. I love that. Wow. Um, I believe he did an interview with yeah. Darren for the Malvern Books. Like they did an event, so it's on the YouTube. Oh, yeah. I'll have so, to watch that. Wow. Okay. Anything else? Um, well, I mean, I feel like yeah, other things that inspired the the chapbook were um, Fleabag season two. I would say <laughs> it's definitely a, a core text <laughs> to take us in a different direction. Oh, I <laughs> love that's it. Perfect. <laughs> um, and. And then for anyone who happens to be in England or Oxford right now, there's a really amazing exhibit. I think it's called Sensory Books at the Bodleian Library um, Mm. that has so much of kind of um, books as sort of bodies and like what our bodies do to books. They've like bottled up smells from books and you can just experience books in this really interesting way. And there's so many interesting medieval texts. So I really would recommend that. Awesome. Okay. We will put links to everything in the show notes for everyone. And yeah, we hope our listeners can join us on November 12th for the book launch. Sophia, thank you so much for making time to talk to us today. This was a delight. Thank you both so much for all your work and just it's been such a wonderful gift to work with you this year. So I'm really grateful. Thank you so much. <laughs>